because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. This week, we are missing Don Watkins. He's on vacation, but I am joined by my pal, Stefan Henna in Germany. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Alex. So I see you've selected a good crop of stories for us to discuss this week. So let's jump in. First one, let's discuss the Democratic presidential debate and how energy and climate played a role or not. Yeah, so recently this was the first Democratic presidential primary debate, and I think there were 10 participants on stage. Um, among those, uh, frontrunner Joe Biden and uh, Joe, uh, Joe John Hickenlooper, former uh, Colorado uh, governor. And uh, the big question leading up to this, of course, was how big a topic will be uh, climate and energy policies. And a lot of people were uh, disappointed, uh, to say the least, that uh, less than 10 minutes of the debate were devoted to this uh, topic and only a few of the participants actually uh, got some comments in on their plans and uh, how they see things. Uh, and so the overall common theme that I saw uh, in the few snippets uh, that went out was uh, they had talking points about urgency and extreme weather events uh, connected to climate. And then all of them uh, have their climate and, and energy policy plans out uh, similar to the Green New Deal, as we discussed in, in previous episodes of Power And uh, they have this common 2030 goal of uh, climate emergency where the policy pretty much has to have started to have a big impact on reducing CO2 emissions. And then, the, of course, uh, you know, we are on the side of science theme and President Trump is not. And the green economy will be a great benefit. So these are the standard talking points that we've witnessed over the, the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, that's as much as I got out of the debate uh, without getting into specifics. I mean, what I what I found interesting is that all of the Democratic uh, candidates that I saw in the debate pretty much agreed that there was this 2030 uh, deadline of climate policy, so there needs to be a rapid plan. And then they all had these big plans, even without Congress acting acting as president alone from the executive. Did, did they did they say that like that Congress would not be involved? Uh, yeah, so Joe Biden was specifically asked that by the hosts, and they, he said, yeah, I, I would do a lot of things like President Obama did a lot of things leading up to the Paris Climate Accords. And then, uh, you know, he would do, he would work with governors and, you know, install like 500,000 charging stations for electric vehicles. This is another common theme, of course, in these Green New Deal type plans, um, you know, doing what the executive can do. And I'm, I'm very, like, I have this model of a, of a republic system where, you know, you have the, the division of power between executive, uh, legislative, and then the court system, of course. And I, I don't think that's a proper role of a, of a president, but seeing how things have evolved and now, you know, the president and the executive are responsible for, you know, permitting pipelines and, 
doing trade business via pipelines and ships and so on with Canada and Mexico and other countries. You know, that, that's how things are right now. The president is very influential in these issues and they could act alone. Um, it's a question of how much Congress can, can uh, restrict a president, but I, I don't think that's a good model, but that's how, how things are right now. So just looking at, because you, you made some notes about different candidates and mm-hmm. and what they said. I mean, one one theme is that there's an, I would say, an eagerness to accept the prospect of doom. So you get, you know, I, I've mentioned the term existential threat comes up a lot, but here I see irreversible yeah. damage and that kind of thing, or irreparable damage. And it's it's 12 years. And it's it's interesting how unselfconscious this is in terms of, you know, I think by this point, at least these people have probably all heard, hey, guess what? There are similar claims, you know, that were made 12 years ago and 24 years ago and 36 years ago. And so this idea of like irreparable damage and even what what does that really mean? So there's there's an eagerness to believe these kinds of doomsday scenarios. And I think it's connected to another thing, which is that there's an eagerness to do something massive even when it makes basically no common sense. So, you know, 500,000 recharging uh, stations, like for a full EV future. I mean, even there are all these studies about how EVs are incredibly carbon intensive and there are a whole bunch of reasons, including the power plants that power them and all the different oil related processes that you need to mine for them and transport the different materials. And it's just... And then even, okay, doing that in America, what is that really going to accomplish? I mean, you could say, yeah, this is a this is a kind of step that may pay dividends in some number of decades, but they're all saying, no, this is this is urgent. And yet there's nothing in their recommendations that would actually you know reduce the rise in global c o two levels, let alone let alone lower them. So what this has the character of is just, oh, this is a this is a convenient big cause for them. And they're willing to be very sloppy about the threat, and as long as it gives them the pretext for action, and they're willing to be very sloppy about the action in terms of the action, you know, the means doesn't need to lead to the end, and then in, and also they're just completely leaving out the value of energy and the downside of any of these things going wrong, which they, I mean, all of these kinds of things go wrong. Uh, certainly, if if government is handling it, but even if it's just speculative private investment, all kinds of things. Are going to go wrong, so it's it's uh, it's not encouraging that there's just no real thinking, and there's just these talking points, and just all all a means to getting power. Yeah. So uh, the way I see it, there's there's certainly a set of talking points that the candidates prepared, and it's a stage performance essentially. So you know, this is different from a from a detailed written plan that they can think about more but they have these talking points and i don't i didn't get the impression that they were really like deep into the matter so if, just to give one example i don't want to harp too much on any individual there but joe biden uh said that correctly said that you know america is is uh, responsible for 15 percent of the emissions and he, he thought that this was a big thing right 
But if you think about that, 15% of global emissions is from the American economy, which is per capita a lot compared to other people, because most other people on the planet are pretty poor compared to the average American, of course. But think about what that means for the future, the next 40, 50 years of emissions. Most of the people don't use remotely as much energy as the average American. And America is already only 15% of the global emissions. China is already twice that. And in China, the average Chinese only consumes like a third of the energy that the average American consumes. So there, there is literally like two or three American populations just in China waiting to get to the level of consumption that the average American enjoys. So just the growth potential in these developing countries is so enormous that it's the future emissions are so much bigger than what we emitted so far. It's uh, the fifteen percent really, really is a non-starter. Even if you can could get that like close to fifty percent or zero percent. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's let's jump into a related story because with with all of these climate energy stories, there's this narrative that the world is ending because of fossil fuel use, but then the renewable energy industry in particular is coming to the rescue. Nuclear, unwelcome, and one. Uh, article that our friend uh, Luca shared with us is by a, an interesting guy named Peter Diamandis, whom I know a little bit. Um, and he is he's part of a group that I'm part of called Strategic Coach, and he's close to somebody who's a mentor of mine as well called uh, named Dan Sullivan. And anyway, Peter, among other things, uh, wrote the book Abundance, and he's connected with Singularity University, and he founded the the X Prize. He's done some some cool stuff. One thing that's interesting about certain Peter and others is that they have a kind of selective optimism about certain things, and 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 then the selective pessimism. And I would say the biggest pessimism is about climate. So there's this kind of narrative that, well, we're reaching the singularity, which is this point of infinite uh, abundance and infinite capability, and yet human beings altering our climate conditions through rising CO2 levels, like that's an absolute catastrophe that needs to end and we can't handle that. And there's just this huge uh, incongruity. I've never um, seen any of them really address it. And I, I think it's, so my own interpretation until I see them actually address it is just that there's there's a huge amount of conventionality in the abundance thinking. There's something that they don't get about the fundamental nature, that the cause of abundance, which more broadly is is the cause of human mastery of, of nature, which is even more fundamental than abundance, which is that we have this ability to transform a naturally dangerous and deficient planet into an unnaturally safe and abundant planet. And part of that is that we are very, very good at dealing with all kinds of different uh, changing conditions, largely conditions that we create uh, deliberately but then also conditions that have nothing to do with us. And then also conditions that might be side effects, like changing conditions that might be side effects, like uh, climate related changes. And so one other thing that's interesting is that Peter and others in this kind of uh, realm have an extreme focus on renewables and not nuclear. And then this is the, this is one of the themes of this, uh, email and and I've seen other things by him and and other people on this and it's it's basically yes we are headed to this complete revolution where renewable power plus batteries is going to revolutionize everything in some sort of unprecedented 
exponential way. So Stefan, just uh, share a couple of highlights from the email. Yeah, so this has been the, the prediction that in, in 10 years, you will not own a car um, by Peter. So uh, just a couple of quotes. So the era of in, the internal combustion engine car is ending. And later from here on out, it's all about electric vehicles and autonomous ride sharing. So from this point in time, right? So oil demand is predicted to peak as early as 2021, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, uh, if, if that's a reliable source for uh, this kind of prediction. And prediction, of course, is very hard. Um, and he also says that uh, EVs are set to, uh, electric vehicles are set to win by sheer economic advantage. And then he has some price tags like uh, $80 cents um, or 80 cents per mile driven in a conventional car and then a predicted 35 cents per mile in an electric vehicle. And this will then lead to, of course, a switch to a very natural market-driven switch to electric vehicles. So, and the yearly cost to operate is a fraction of the of the projected to become a fraction of the uh, conventional car. And battery prices, of course, continue to plummet in this in this narrative. Uh, something that I would question. But uh, well, okay, let's let, let's. I want to challenge some of these things okay. first. Okay, so first we have oil demand is predicted to peak as early as 2021, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and then some experts suggest it may have already peaked. Okay, why select that in particular, like Bloomberg New Energy Finance? Are they, so if you look at them, I mean, this is a kind of, well, it's a Bloomberg project, but this is a kind of very, very speculative type uh, domain where they hold these different kinds of conferences saying that a particular set of technologies, particularly renewables and battery technologies, are going to change the world. But this is not an organization with any kind of track record in forecasting oil demand. So it's interesting they're not citing International Energy Agency uh, or the Energy Information Administration in the U.S. or different uh, organizations with much more of a track record. And so this is, Peter's not giving the indication at all, this is kind of a crank prediction. I mean, it's at least a fringe prediction. I would call it a crank uh, prediction. And then it's, okay, sheer economic advantage. So part of this is then, are we getting an objective uh, picture? So societally, societally unacceptable for you to hold on to that old gas. Okay. That's one thing. That's one kind of dynamic, but uneconomical. So um, let's see, uh, double every two years into 2025 and well beyond. I, I mean, Okay, that there's this whole dynamic of exponential uh, guesses, and one thing is that people throw around the term exponential so much. And one one thing with different trends is that in in a certain stage of growth for any uh, for a given industry, you can see dramatic growth that looks like it will be exponential, but it's very very rare that it will continue in that exponential way. I mean, it might be you know like in a certain neighborhood, you know, uh, yogurt restaurants might grow exponentially for a couple of years and you just like, oh my gosh, you know, in, in a few years, everyone is going to be eating yogurt all the time. And then you think, okay, no, there are certain dynamics that are, that are pushing that. And maybe this isn't uh, going to happen. One thing uh, with this point about the maintenance, which is an interesting thing. So I haven't, I don't know whether this cost is legitimate in any sense, but what's not being mentioned here is the hu- huge thing with EVs 
is the time that it takes to maintain it in terms of the labor to charge it and to deal with it, which is immense. And there was a pretty good story, actually a very good story recently in the New York Times about somebody driving to Vegas and having to spend five extra hours charging the car. And just think about the value of human time and how inconvenient uh, this is, as well as with the prices of these things, not really factoring in how a lot of these cars are a lot less luxurious than uh, cars at even uh, lower price points. So there's just this, there's this very rose-colored glasses view of things like, okay, I'm going to look at certain kinds of predictions, and then I'm going to only look at a maintenance from a certain kind of perspective, and I'm going to assume these kinds of uh, exponential uh, trends. And then, yes, this is going to be this incredible revolution. Whereas in reality, right now, what's happening is car makers are losing a ton of money on EVs. Um, and they're, you know, EV price, another thing is EV price declines are hugely related to fossil fuels because fossil fuels are being used to make them uh, and to run them. So you need to keep that uh, in mind. And anyway, they're, they're losing a ton of money even at uh, the current prices, they're having a, you look at Tesla even, which has a huge brand advantage over just about everyone else. And the huge problems they're having to the point where people, you know, some people are worried about bankruptcy, which I don't necessarily think will happen, but it's not this kind of panacea. And then you see there have been certainly for the last decade, these very, very optimistic claims about how EVs were going to penetrate really, really um, uh, quickly. So there's just this this fascinating, there's the actual reality, which is that uh, gasoline cars are still being produced more and more and more every year. Like they're still growing. Uh, and and yet there's this narrative, oh my gosh, they're about to disappear. And, and everyone is making all their profits on the gasoline powered vehicles or credits that people making like gasoline powered SUVs are selling. So there's this, if you're going to make these predictions, it's not that they're impossible in some way, but you need to acknowledge the actual reality going on and not just have this incredible bias in favor of renewables and uh, EVs. Uh, I interrupted you, Stefan. Other other thoughts or facts that are relevant here? Yeah. So just to give a bit of global context, I, I think last year, electric vehicles had something like around a 2% market share. So that means that we are adding vastly more internal combustion engines or conventional cars compared to to electric vehicles. Wait, and is that, that is that of new sales or is that of I total think that's of, of new sales, yes. So it's it's a massive increase from 2017 to 2018. That's why this projection of you know doubling and doubling and doubling every year in sales. But it's it's still like a fraction of the of the total market. And that then necessarily means if you consider like a useful lifetime of a standard car of about 10 years, maybe some cars, maybe even more, then that's already locked in with every year you you sell more conventional cars compared to electric vehicles, you lock in that they will be around because nobody will just crush their car because even if electric vehicles, a new electric vehicle would be like cheaper to to operate compared to conventional where you already paid for it so that's the the 10 year okay that's hyperbole maybe a bit um but even if this exponential sales growth would continue forever without saturation effect which is incredibly unlikely for many reasons even then it would take much more than 10 years projected from now 
So this is a very rosy view of, of things. If, even just the fact that we would agree with uh, Peter. And so just one, one reason to bring this up is that these kinds of projections are often coupled with with demands for a whole bunch of government power, including support of restriction of things like the ability to produce and use uh, gasoline. And there's this narrative, oh yeah, it's going to happen really quickly and we know this and we have this graph and that shows it. And what I'm trying to convey here is that there is not this incredible, tre- this incredible obvious trend. And if there was, then people wouldn't have to spend so much time evangelizing about it, it would just be really, really clear. Like, oh, it would be, you know, Teslas would be coming, becoming more and more popular and profitable and everyone would like it, you know, as against what seems to be happening, which is that they've had a huge trouble with uh, profitability, despite being like a lot less luxurious than many cars at comparable price points. And a lot of the early buyers seem to have been status related buyers and sometimes the you know the lure of that and you know the alleged societal benefits that kind of thing uh, can wear off so i would say that the insofar as I mean, electric automobiles have certain they're definitely uh, appealing elements to them and it you know it may be worth it particular and, and you want certain variables to improve and then for sure the autonomy variable is one that we want. And then if you have things like, well, tunnels, like Elon Musk talks about, like if you could have that, and then that benefits from something that has no direct emissions, that could be really, really cool. So there's this, this I think, false alternative of, oh, you're an evangelist for EVs and you act like gasoline cars have no value and no future, or you just think uh, you, you sort of don't want any uh, progress with battery vehicles slash electric vehicles. And no, what you want is you want you want human flourishing. So what you want is people to be able to use the best vehicles that they can buy for their money, for their purposes. And you want that to evolve in all sorts of ways. So we want these things to evolve, but we don't want laws in place where lots of people are forced to use overly expensive cars that don't meet their needs in the name of this EV push. Okay. Let's talk about, there's, um, so I would put the, the Peter Diamandis thing is kind of in the category of popular propaganda uh, about these kinds of things. And I think there's a continuum of this. Now, one interesting analysis that came out recently was, a, 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 I hate when they're called studies, but there's a study uh, analyzing what it would take to decarbonize the U.S. power grid. Now, I found this interesting uh in terms of, I think it's thoughtful in certain ways, and then uh, a mess in certain ways. So it, it indicates much more honesty about some of these issues than we usually see, but also I think some deeply wrong uh, methods and assumptions. So Stefan, why don't you start out by giving us a summary of this? Yeah, so this is from the consultancy group Wood McKenzie, and they call it a white paper. So we don't have to call it a study, but it's it's similar in its, in its approach, I think. Um, and th- and they analyzed what it would take to actually have a rapid uh, change in the in the fossil fuel use, uh, is particularly in on the U.S. power grid. And uh, their total cost estimate went uh, to 4.5 trillion dollars in today's dollars, uh, given current technology to co- fully decarbonize the U.S. power grid, as they say. 
So, and then they compare these costs to like what was spent since 2001 on the war on terror and $2,000 per year per household uh, over the next 20 years and so on. And so one thing that immediately uh, stood out at me is like a lot of people will say, well, $4.5 trillion is certainly a respectable amount of money, but it's not unheard of. It's not like the deficit is uh, that small. Um and, you know, we can just wipe the federal debit card a couple of times more and then we would be good. And uh, so I would caution against that number because that, A, there are elements in this that cannot be done in the time frame proposed, like 2030, even 2040. And then this is a sort of rather vague central planning approach. And in, in a sense, this white paper um, was vague on the methodology on how they got there. So I, I would be very cautious. I think they underestimate the absolute cost in this. Um, although they they have some reasonable assumptions. So for example, they have a supply chain cost escalation factored into that. So if we ramp up a lot of production in solar and wind and infrastructure and so on, of course, like the raw materials will get more expensive if you produce a lot of on-the-spot demand and so on. So that it's not totally unrealistic, but I would still caution against uh, this number. Yeah. Oh, let, me, let me say one thing about this number and what I think is a flaw in energy thinking in general, which is that often thinking about energy proceeds, it, it talks about future energy in these different hypothetical scenarios of not using fossil fuels as if, okay, we're, we're where we are now. And then, oh, should we take path A? or path B. And when people are thinking even a $4.5 trillion, there's all sorts of issues of how do you quantify that kind of thing. But they think about $4.5 trillion in the context of the fossil-fueled, very productive world that works really, really well and that was built around fossils. And you think, okay, in that world, yes, you can spend $4.7 trillion and what that means in this world. But you have this fundamentally uh, functioning and very high-functioning energy economy but the thing is that fossil fuels and probably above all oil play this this unique and fundamental positive role in our economy and you can't it it like when you talk about these costs you have to talk about it, you can't talk about any of these efforts without talking about the very real if not overwhelming possibility that you would totally destroy your economy and that these numbers would cease to mean anything and that that losing 4.5 trillion dollars it wouldn't be that. It would be just the destruction of the economy in a in a very fundamental way. Like what you know, what does it cost if we have power outages all the time, or what does it cost if our transportation system work, doesn't work, or global trade doesn't work? Like what is it costing Venezuela right now that the country doesn't work? Like you could put that in dollar terms, but it wouldn't capture this total um, uh, breakdown. So whenever I see this kind of this number, it's it's not representing the reality, including like you'd have to, if you're talking about something like this and this kind of goal, you would have to have some sort of huge, almost infinite downside possibility. And it's interesting that people do this with climate with, I think, much less plausibility, but not with economics. Like they won't say, oh, well, like here are the 
50 million things that could go wrong with this kind of unprecedented government planning trying to replace this incredibly intricate energy system that has been built with fossil fuels and free markets. And we're going to replace that with you know, the equivalent of Ocasio-Cortez and a hundred advisors. Like that, what is the downside of that? I mean, the downside of that is just the total uh, collapse of everything. And then there are a lot of intermediate kind of disasters. So, and yet when people talk about, oh my gosh, if it goes up two degrees, you know, it's this infinite thing. And that's, that's, that would be a hundred trillion dollars. So we need to think more about this, but there's just something about putting a, a single number to a disastrous proposal that, and, and something with almost an infinite downside that fails to capture, that, that trivializes the actual uh, precariousness of it. Yeah, I, I think uh, as long as the trade dispute gets settled, we can at least buy these items uh, manufactured by Chinese coal power. So... Uh, yeah, and you know, one more thing that I found particularly interesting uh, mentioned in the study is uh, they focus on "quote unquote" renewables. What they uh, explicitly state is that it's wind and solar that is the primary focus, and they, of course, have specific problems that they mention. And so here's a quote. Today, no large and complex power system in the world operates with an average annual penetration of greater than 30% wind and solar. So this is the market share of 30%. Although that's like in Denmark, you get over 40%, but that's a relatively small market with good connections to neighboring countries. Well, but that's, that's, but that's not their consumption. That's their generation, right? Like, I don't even know of cases where the... Because that that's I think that's misleading, right? Because I mean, if, yeah, if you, I have this analogy you, to chocolate, like if you say, okay, well, like Denmark, I mean, like if you say like Belgium produces forty percent of its calories from chocolate, that doesn't mean that the Belgian population is eating forty percent of their their calories from chocolate. It just means they can produce something, and then yeah, a whole bunch of other people can consume it in much lower percentages. But then that's going to set a limit on what other countries can produce. And so if you're trying to get the idea, oh yeah, well, we can eat 40% chocolate or 100% chocolate because Belgium is doing it, like that's that's totally wrong. So what we've seen in studying Denmark is that it's something like 40% generation is wind, but it's some very small percentage uh of consumption. And then that that generation has to be spread over all sorts of people. So I don't I don't know of any situation, I mean maybe you do, but where it's even 30 there's just all these fallacies here, but where it's actually 30% of, of use or consumption is wind and solar. Yeah, so you can see the, the Danish grid in isolation. So it's, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. It's not, you, you can't just count like this, but I, I don't have an example where, where it's really high, actually. It's, I know Iceland has a lot of hydropower and gets close to 100 from non-fossil fuel and electricity, but that's the only big exception. Of course, you know, nuclear in France, it's, these are the two big non-fossils. Um, so, and then they go on and say, like, current evidence shows that a large and complex uh, power systems tend to reach 25% wind and solar market penetration with relative ease, assuming fundamental natural resources and grid infrastructure prerequisites. So that means there's a lot of wind and solar available. And then, you know, you have a lot of um, conventional power plants and, you know, 
sophisticated power grid to manage that intermittent energy. And let's say beyond that point, operational and cost complexities progressively multiply in large part due to the intermittent nature of renewables. So that ha- that's something that we've mentioned a lot on Power R. The, the total cost to the system from wind and solar actually go up with a share of generation, right? So with 5% solar, you don't have much of a problem. You know, 95% of your entire system can back that up. You know, when the sun is not shining, it can ramp up something. And then when the sun shines a lot, it, you can, you know, slow down your coal power plant like a couple of percent. But if you reach high percentages, these costs get get more and more problematic. You need more transmission lines. You need, you know, some ramping capacity. You need more natural gas um, turbines that can ramp up and down and accommodate the gluts or shortfalls on a sh- on short notice and so on. And that's a, that's a very fundamental thing. And that is something I believe a lot of people underestimate in the complexity of a power grid. So, so one thing is, is so this point you made it. So this, this is an example of where I think this, this white paper is has some honesty to it. It's show it's not just this kind of evangelism. It's showing, hey, there's a real problem with these intermittent uh, sources because, yeah, if, if they're just a small percentage, then it, it doesn't cost you that much to deal with them. But then, if they become a larger and larger percentage, then it creates all sorts of uh, problems, and that becomes costly. Like that's a good. So I just want to highlight, I think that's a more kind of rational thing. And it's it's good, at least in this case, that it's happening. And you would like to see that more. I mean, you'd like to see it to the point where people are acknowledging the intermittency problem in democratic presidential debates. Yeah. Um, yeah, I doubt any one of them have has read it. Um, so then, then I give another quote here that's also interesting. The amount of reliable capacity needed to backstop renewable intermittency ranges from near 100% backup to no backup. So you have to have something that can ramp up from zero to 100. So in the case of Denmark, you sometimes get over 100% of generation compared to demand. And then these 40% need to go somewhere um, outside the country. And then you have, of course, you know, days where, where the wind isn't blowing at all. So 100% of uh, wind capacity is almost useless. And then you need someone else to deliver that, and so that that's here from range from one hundred percent to no to zero percent. And then later they say a vicious cycle emerges as wind and solar penetration increases without storage support, and inadequate backup capacity raises grid resiliency concerns. But this this is I do believe that if Denmark was cut off from neighboring countries, including Germany. Uh, which are much larger and have you know excess capacity in power generation, they would probably have 24-7 blackouts at this point. I don't think they have enough uh, reserve capacity to run their grid on their own uh, year-round. Um, so and another important point here is in the absence of energy storage, installed capacity of wind and, st- and solar must increase exponentially to provide sufficient reserve margins for a large and complex power system, dramatically increasing system costs and introducing massive generation inefficiencies. So this is, again, a point where, you know, the higher the percentage of wind and solar on the grid, the the exponentially higher the cost become because absent cheap storage, you you have to balance the grid demand and supply instantaneously. You can't just, uh, you know, 
overbuild the capacity and then just, you know, it just works. You, you have to, to handle the gluts, the overproduction, the excess production that they, you know, randomly generate. And then you also have to manage the shortfalls. And that's... I, I don't get this. I don't get this argument, though, because they're saying, I mean, I, I don't get what seems to be what they're saying, because in the absence of energy storage, installed capacities of wind and solar must increase exponentially to provide sufficient reserve margins. So if you think about it as, you know, we've talked about, say, the example of Germany, and sometimes it's dark, calm, and you're near zero solar wind production, and then other times it's it's bright and windy, and then you're high. So what if you, I mean, if you just keep, if you keep increasing the number of facilities, you know, in the same place, then you're just going to get these very higher peaks, but lower valleys, but you're still, the valleys aren't going to be able to remotely handle the, uh, uh, the need. And then you're going to have too much power a lot. So what are, are they saying that you need to, when they say it's going to increase exponentially, are they talking about, you need to build facilities in some distant place to offset it? Yeah, so that, that's where the white paper actually is a bit vague uh, and doesn't really really show how they mean it. But I, I think the general idea is, and that's what I get from other approaches, is that you essentially overbuild the capacity massively in one place. And that place then can, you know, with sufficient transmission capacity, uh, support a neighboring region if it has a shortfall. So you you increase the capacity massively overbuilt in every region, and the idea is in some regions there will be sun and or wind available, and then you can shift around. But for this to work, of course, you need massive access capacity so that any given region can you know back up the other regions that have a have a shortfall. And whether that's realistic or not depends on the actual region and the weather patterns present there. So I, I know from um, Central Europe that there's a, there can be these dark calms or dark doldrums um, where there's no wind and no sun for maybe about a week or so. So you would need that kind of backup or a transmission line, I don't know, from the Northern Sahara. or, or Yeah, I mean, this, this is all... <laughs> I get I get fatigued with these things sometimes because it's just it's such a scam. Like this whole I and and maybe we can connect this to the point of why the hell are you focused on a hundred percent renewable? Like it makes no sense as a goal. It's the most dogmatic. I mean, I can't think of. I just have to say synonyms for dogmatic that are equally derogatory. I mean, stupid. I mean, can you imagine that you're you're trying to reduce emissions and then you're focused on these renewables, which are hugely dependent on fossil fuels uh, anyway for any foreseeable future, and then you're ignoring nuclear, and then you're creating all these situations where it needs to be a hundred percent. Even just one example I thought of is like even if you are willing to. If you were to say, okay, I'm going to use like diesel or natural gas or something like that as a backup sometimes, I think you could, even in this sort of impossible thing of like, if you said, okay, well, I'm willing for it to be uh, 98% renewable or something like that, it, you know, the, because you have to deal with extremes, as you mentioned, like dark doldrums, you have to deal with things where they'll come up once in a while, maybe even once every couple of years, and you need to be resilient. So kind of the obvious thing is, okay, well, let's have a stockpile of fossil fuel or nuclear fuel, and then that'll protect us. But no, this it's this dogma of 100% renewable. So not only do we have to do this impossible 
thing of 90% or even 50% renewable, but we have to do a hundred percent and therefore no, uh, like no oil allowed, no gas allowed, no uranium allowed. And so this whole thing is coming from dogma and it's, it's coming from this, this dogma, this renewable religion and that, so it's in some sense is legitimate to explore just how impossible this is, but it's maybe even more important to talk about how irrational this is, how this is, this isn't hundred percent renewable is not a legitimate goal by any like by any plausibly rational standards, not a, by reducing pollution, by reducing emission, you know, CO2 emissions, reducing uh, climate impacts, certainly not improving human life. It's a completely irrational thing. So to have all of these smart people obsessed with, yeah, how can we build a hundred percent renewable? Like, what are they worried about? That we're going to run out of nuclear in 10,000 years? It's just, you're sacrificing people today to nothing to nothing, to just this idea of, oh, I want to be able to put the stamp of renewable on what I'm doing, or at least what I pretend to plan to be doing. I mean, to uh, give them credit, they mentioned at the end that uh, nuclear right now is providing double the amount of power that the renewables do or the wind and solar do. And uh, But it's, of course, uh, any legitimate analysis or any legitimate policy plan would have to start with, you know, as a centerpiece, how can we do something with nuclear where we know it works, where we know we have the technology and where we know we just need to do it in a way that we can actually afford it. And that would have a shot at replacing substantial amounts of fossil fuels. And every, every time you start with something speculative or where you can already see massive problems as with wind and solar, there's... This, it's sort of fantasy land immediately. And I, I just want to give one uh, final quote on this where we get um, the connection to the, the presidential uh, primary debate that we had earlier. So this quote is, aggressive climate policies with 2030 targets will require more capacity to be built every single year over the next 11 years than what has been installed collectively over the past 20 years. So this is sort of the the order of magnitude that they calculate is necessary in new investments immediately over the next 11 years to, to meet this short-term target. And then they have a bunch of assumptions about how much storage capacity needs to be. And storage is actually the biggest cost item. So that in that sense, the, the white paper has a realistic approach. Yeah, storage will break the neck of, of renewables. Yeah, so just uh, as we're wrapping up today, I just want to try to give a positive alternative, which which we talk about, which is that we should always be clear on our on our goal, which serves as the the standard by which we we evaluate different kinds of technologies and decisions. And ultimately we should be focused on okay, what what technologies, decisions, policies are going to advance human flourishing. And that means you really need to look objectively at the role that fossil fuels play in our lives plays in our lives, uh, both the benefits and the side effects, and and recognize that it's just, it is this unique and fundamental and overwhelmingly positive role. And, and I think it's very helpful to put it in the category of things like vaccines and antibiotics and even steel, where the the level of energy production, it, it's, it's really, it's really, 
you know, fossil fuels, they constitute a universal fuel. So they can produce energy that's affordable and reliable and scalable, you know, to billions of people and versatile that can, that can serve any kind of energy need. And there's not, or power need, and there, there's not any other uh, technology that, that can do that. And certainly that that is doing that now. All the others are extremely, you can think of them as niche fuels. They're very dependent in significant ways on fossil fuels and probably above all oil, which is just the ultimate mobile fuel that really has no equivalent for so many uses. And so we have to recognize, yeah, this is an indispensable part of our unprecedented level of human flourishing. And we should be extremely suspicious of these claims that, oh, well, it can be replaced in a decade or two or three or four. Like, and and even if we think, yeah, there are a bunch of problems associated with it, like, okay, but that doesn't mean that you can actually uh you can actually replace it. And it's it, you know, on the level of somebody saying, Yeah, well, I think we can stop using antibiotics in 10 years or 20 years, like that should be viewed as very uh very dubious. And you want people to prove it rather than force it on you. So that is our show for today. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email Don at, he's not here today, but he will be here to receive your email, don at industrialprogress.net. Also, if you are looking for a speaker or some, if you're an organization that wants help on messaging, also email Don about that and he can uh, tell you what is available. Make sure to subscribe to the mailing list at alexepsteinlist.com. And of course, you can check me out and some of the others out on Facebook and Twitter. All right, next week, all three of us should be back with some more great topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.